0: welcome back to another episode of the ahpba podcast today we're very excited to share our interview with dr shimmel shaw dr shaw is a professor of surgery and the division chief of transplantation at the university of cincinnati the Vice Chair for Health Services Research, and the James and Catherine Orr Endowed Chair of Liver Transplantation. We're excited to share with you a great discussion between Dr. Newhook and Dr. Shaw, encompassing the varied career pathways surgeons may take in the care of HPB patients, as well as the role of transplant for patients with colorectal liver metastases. Also, a few brief announcements before we get started. The HPBA annual meeting is coming up from March 9th to 12th in Miami. Registration is open, and further details can be found on hpba.org. Additionally, Dr. Vreeland and Dr. Dan Nelson will be moderating a webinar hosted by the ACS CSSP on the operative standards for pancreaticoduodenectomy. This will be the first in a series of webinars on various operative standards for cancer surgery. The lineup includes some absolute all-stars, so register today via the link in the show notes or on Twitter. And with those announcements out of the way, I'll turn it over to Dr. Hook and Dr. Shaw, and we hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome to the HPBA podcast. Um, this is Tim here. I won't tell you which one, but I'm solo Tim today, and I'm here with Dr. Shimmel Shah from the University of Cincinnati. Hope you enjoy our talk, and we're, we're going to discuss a couple of different interesting topics near and dear to both of our hearts, um, one with uh, focusing on training paradigms for hepatobiliary surgery, and then also we'll finish up with a conversation about uh, the frontier for patients with unresectable colorectal liver metastases being transplantation. So thank you very much for being with us today, Dr. Shah. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor. So we typically like to start out our interviews with hearing a little bit about you, how you got to where you are, your your path to training, and what led you to do what you do for For all our established listeners out there and also our trainees who, who uh, emulate you. Yeah,
2: so I... Um... I'm an interesting story in the sense that, unlike a lot of folks, I typically have kind of just gone where people have told me to go, and I've followed the paths of folks ahead of me, and I never haven't thought too much about things. When I was a resident, I definitely wanted to do a palatability surgery when I was in the lab. I was in the lab of Mark Callery, and did a lot of basic science research on pancreatic cancer, and definitely um, thought about doing surgical oncology, palatability surgery, and then when I went back clinical, I thought I was surgical oncology all the way. And what happened when I, and it's, it's great to hear people's thoughts on this, but when I was at fourth year, I went to the SSO meeting and I liked it, but it was a lot of other stuff. I came back home. I talked to my chairman who said, well, surgical oncology is a lot of breast, a lot of sarcoma and a lot of skin. And if you don't like that, you should consider doing transplant if you want to do a patabillia surgery because that's kind of where a lot of patabillia surgery is going and it allows you to do everything. We didn't have, where I did residency at the Brigham, we didn't have a liver transplant program. So I didn't have any exposure to what liver transplant was. But I had seen a guy operate uh, during a living donor, uh, sorry, during a deceased donor. I remember uh, I was only a second year resident, but uh, I watched him do the donor and I remember just being wowed at his technical skill. And he had trained at Toronto and uh, his name was Robbie Chari. He's no longer in medicine, but he and I had become close over the years. And so I called him up and he was at Vanderbilt now. And I said, you know, I was, I I was thinking surgical oncology, but now um, I'm getting told maybe I should do transplant. You trained at Toronto, you did transplant. What do you think? And he's like, yeah, no, that's the way to go. And he's like, where you should go is Toronto. And I was still a little bit confused about the whole thing because I didn't have any exposure. And I actually did interview for surgical oncology as well as at Toronto. I only interviewed at two places, but I got into Toronto and I went there on the transplant track, literally kind of on a whim. I mean, no real exposure to it. Um, Still wanted to a palatability surgery as my ultimate career goal, not transplant. I'd just gotten married, and we were, you know, working on the fellowship things together and stuff like that. And and so my wife ended up staying in Boston, and I was in Toronto, and I needed a job back. And the only jobs that were available were in transplant. So I got a job at UMass doing transplant and hepatobiliary surgery, which is what all the attendings at Toronto were like. They essentially did both, and it was ideal practice. But transplant in the United States is a lot different than transplant in Canada in terms of hours and just a lot of middle-of-the-night stuff, which I didn't really see a lot as a fellow. Um, but I, got, I, I went where I could get a good job, and, and so I started working. And here we are, 16 years later, um, still doing transplant, still doing the biliary, Um, But transplant has been really kind of a, a guiding force for me in the sense that it, as much as there's negatives about it for a career choice for the trainees that are out there, There is a lot of job security in transplant if you can do it well. It's hard, and you need to operate. Unlike a lot of other specialties where the amount of time you're spending in the operating room is going down, including surgical oncology, at least we're still in the OR doing big open cases, some laparoscopic cases, but operating a lot. Didn't know that at the time when I went into it, but I've... um, I've really never regretted the choices um, that I've made, but a lot of it was just on a gut, on a whim, what people told me to do and kind of following the path, not thinking too much. And who knows, who knows how things would have been, but I was a surgical oncology person, which is why I still um, really like a powder biliary and and many of my close friends are surgical oncologists because I think um, that's a lot of what I live and breathe.
1: Well, we'll count you as the one who got away. But uh, so uh, so, just for our listeners out there who are, who are thinking about um, this sort of path, um, how much of your practice right now is um, hepatobiliary resectional surgery, benign versus oncologic? And then how much of it is transplantation, would you estimate? I'd say I'm about 65, 35, okay. uh, maybe 70, 30 now because...
2: I'm starting to give a lot of my hepatobiliary cases to my junior partners. And I'm holding on to the transplant, doing that instead. I, as I've gotten older, it's been tricky. I've gotten to enjoy the transplant more, primarily because I, the hepatobiliary stuff has a lot of recurrences. The patients don't do great. Um, the long-term survival. Um, and unless you're, unless you're really into transplant, you don't think transplant patients do well, but they actually do really well. Our one-year, three-year, five-year survival rates are really good now. And so it's actually a really gratifying operation. And from a trainee perspective, I get a lot out of it, um, having the fellows or the residents do the cases. So educationally and stuff, it feels really great. I think the advantage of transplant as a specialty, whether you're a patability surgeon or doing both or doing neither or, or doing a mixed Transplant gives you some of the tools to make you a better hepatobiliary surgeon. And I can't say that enough in terms of being able to handle yourself around the hepatic veins, being able to handle yourself between the liver and the cava, um, all kinds of cable problems. And then now for pancreas, a lot of the arterial and venous reconstructions and things, I think it just helps you with those aspects. So if you are interested in really getting those skills at a higher level, I think transplant gives you those tools. And so we work together a lot with our surgical oncology team um, in, as a group, and it works out great because I think we try, to, we try to blend those strengths that
1: each group has. That's excellent. So I know that a lot of um, HPB training paradigms tried to integrate some transplantation exposure, different programs have different amounts of time um, to allow for those exact tools that you just mentioned. For example, um, in my HPB year, I was over at Methodist doing a lot of excellent work. And that's exactly what I got out of it was another to take it to another level, right? In terms of technical skill and comfort pri- primarily around the CAVA and the path cable confluence for sure. So I-, I totally agree with that. Now for me, just to compare and contrast, I did SSO for two years followed by one year of HPV. So I did not do a focused transplant training. What do you think about this comment that depending on where you train, it's almost like it's just a mix of advanced HPV training. For me, um, there's a lot of medicine involved in transplantation that uh, I like the oncologic part of the medicine if I were to do some medicine compared to transplantation. So how much of your time do you spend in the ICU, for example, and, and the critical care of really sick patients that you ultimately, you know, back from death's door with a transplant sometimes yeah
2: we make rounds obviously
1: (laughs) yeah uh, for them but we got icu docs now that kind of handle a lot
2: of the icu care but yes we are doing a lot of the medication stuff that's now second nature i tend to be one of those folks that lets the icu manage the critical care part of things and i will manage the the patient the family making sure all the arteries are open and you know, handling kind of the bleeding and, and those kind of mm-hmm. things. So I think it's a mix. Um, if we do a good job in the OR, hopefully yeah. they do okay. But, um, and exactly. and I think the the tricky thing about doing that third year is if it's the same folks that trained you in the first two years, how much extra stuff are you really getting out of it? And so that's where, you know, it's it adds on a year, but, um, and then one thing you don't get as much is benign training. Although many of my surgical oncology friends around the country are doing a lot of benign stuff as well. Cholidocal cysts, adenomas, um, you know, renal cells, which that's not benign, but still renal cells going up the cava. Um, to me, that's definitely like a transplant oriented kind of part of the operation, which is great. But I know a lot of surgical oncologists that do that. And then many that I have shared notes with that they've taught me something. So I think part of that is sometimes just learning and learning on the fly and doing things, but um, getting a whole different tool set is kind of a cool concept, whether it's the surgical oncology side or the transplant side.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really excellent conversation um, about just training paradigms in general, given that we've done different paths to some sort of some of the same stuff. But I I personally believe that that complex training is complex training. Um, And there's definitely, for me, at least, uh, there was a growth. And there still is, obviously, I'm an early career surgeon. But there's there's a, a growth as a trainee that i everyone has like a three month kind of beginning everyone getting to know you learn how to do things rather than get off the ground running so for me it was just a continued exponential growth that i didn't want to interrupt along with focused transplant training um, and also you know obviously learning how to teach you know take other fellows through cases and things like that so i i, I think it's probably regional to some degree but there's no doubt that that for me, the transplant training as part of my HPB training was one of the number one draws to doing the third year and we don't do transplantation here. So for me, obviously I had to to leave. It's an amazing opportunity. My
2: biggest beef though, from a transplant perspective and what I stress to all young transplant surgeons is you have to know the cancer if you want to operate on it. Mm -hmm. So you better be able to go to tumor board and talk the talk walk the walk, understand what you're saying, just because you can cut it out doesn't mean that you should operate on it. And I've seen that be the pitfall of many transplant surgeons. Um, Yes, we can take the liver out, we can cut out the veins and put it back together and do all these crazy things. But if it's not biologically indicated, it shouldn't be done. And uh, I just posted a question the other day in Twitter about Positive lymph nodes in the portal on a cholangiocarcinoma, and do you operate or do you not? And a lot of people operate on that. I actually, I don't know if I see the point of that. Understanding the biology and understanding, you know, about cancer, we don't get a lot of training in that unless you train at some of these hybrid programs. And at Toronto, we got a ton of it, but I don't mm-hmm. know at a lot of transplant programs if you get a lot of it. Um, we teach a lot to our fellows here because we do a lot, but. That's the one thing I want people to make sure that they understand. You can't just just because you can do an operation doesn't mean you should be doing it.
1: Completely agree with that, 100. Um, percent. That's complete gospel for our listeners here. You know, I'll tell you um, from from my standpoint too that you, just to bring it 360 here, the I learned a lot from at least an SSO of the other stuff you mentioned the the things in surgical oncology that was not as interesting. The other stuff certainly at times was not as interesting to me, but from an oncologic perspective, um, learning different treatment paradigms of advanced cancers and the other stuff was very helpful for me. And also learning how to read the literature and apply that to, to my disease site, um, you know, that I like to, to, to work with was, was extremely helpful too. So everyone's a little bit different. So I had a question um, as, a, as a leader in, in, um, in your department and um, as a boss, And a visionary, obviously, in this field, as a lot of people are asking to talk about colorectal liver metastases, um, at least in the surgical oncology field, as well as other things in transplant, when you are looking at a potential partner um, to do hepatobiliary surgery, let's just pretend it's like a a mix of everything. What are are you looking for in where they trained and and what skill sets they bring to the table? And maybe that would help some of our listeners um, when they're thinking about these decisions.
2: Yeah. So in our, in our place, we have a surgical oncology division, and then we have a transplant division and the epitobiliary piece is kind of under our name, but we both do everything. Um, I know you're the the way we've, the way we've kind of worked it out is whoever gets the referral can do the case. The only thing I ask is if you're going to do something, you present it at our epitobiliary conference. So I run the hepatobiliary conference and Dr. Ahmad runs the pancreas conference. So if I have a pancreas referral, I'm going to bring it to that conference and let everyone hear about it. So Everyone knows that I'm doing something because I don't do that much pancreas anymore, but um, that way everyone's, everyone's on the same playing field. Everyone knows what you're doing. Everyone's aware. Um, But I don't care if other people are doing the cases. Let's just talk about it and make sure that that, you know, we're all on the same page about what you're doing and everything else. I, but so in general, I'm going to be hiring transplant surgeons. Mm. And so it's it's rare to need a hepatobiliary person nowadays, which is what's really tricky. Um, and we're not really looking for one uh, and haven't. But if we were, it would be someone that had the hybrid training, um, that did transplant as well as has some merit of working with folks that do a lot of hepatobiliary surgery. Um, And I think that's kind of the combined thing. But even when people join my division, if they want to do a palliability, by all means, they can. They got to figure out how to get the referrals and um, how to go to the conferences and and hear about things and and have an interest. I think they do all go hand in hand. So it's important that people have an understanding, especially as we're doing more and more living donor transplants, having um, expertise in the palliability surgery is really important.
1: So to brand yourself as a hepatobiliary surgeon in 2022, do you feel that that should require some degree of focused transplant training? I mean, there's a lot of talk about what is a hepatobiliary surgeon and and what constitutes that. Does you even require a fellowship? Does that just mean that you do a lot of repetitions, albeit maybe in in community practice? Um, I don't know the answer to that.
2: Yeah, I think it should be either doing surgical oncology, transplant or one of the HPV fellowships that's out there. I think you gotta do something nowadays. It's hard to get a job, especially academically without that plaque on the wall. And Mm -hmm. so I think whichever route you go, um, you have to go with the route and then you're gonna be in that kind of, in that house of specialty. So one of the things I tell a lot of young folks um, that have finished out of here that have done surgical oncology and stuff is you have to be ready to do high pack or be ready to do other aspects, even if you want to do HPV. Um, same thing with, um, with my field. If you're going to do transplant and HPB, be ready to do a lot of kidney, maybe some vascular access, along with the cool and sexy stuff, which is a right hepatectomy and maybe a liver transplant, things like that. So I think every field has um, some stuff that's in the nosebleed section. Um, mm-hmm. you, have to be, you have to enjoy that, whatever it may be. Um, if you enjoy that, then you're gonna really like the sexy stuff. Uh, but every field has its aspects. And I think um, those aspects you have to endear in the beginning. And then later on when you're 10, 15 years out, yeah, maybe you're only gonna do a few operations. And uh, you know, the bile duct resection, the right lobe, the left lobe, uh, and maybe an occasional tri-seg. Um, if you're, you know, If that happens down the road, fine. But in the beginning, you gotta be willing to do all the different aspects. And so, whatever specialty you choose via the discipline, be ready to do a lot of that, uh, a lot of everything in the beginning. My first, I look at my case log when I started in 2006. Um, I was looking at it recently because I found it in one of my drawers. And my first two cases were open J tubes. And my next two were license of adhesions. And then I had a fistula. Uh, before I did anything, I didn't get an HPB referral for one year. So, it takes time. But now I feel like I have the most, you know, the best practice anyone could want um, because it's a mix of everything.
1: That's fantastic. So we talked a lot about the merits of transplantation training and SSO and the blend of the two sort of, but what about isolated to patabiliary surgery fellowships on their own? Like I used that to augment my SSO training. What about um, trainees who are considering, they want to be an HPV surgeon, so they do an HPV fellowship. Um, what are your thoughts on on standalone HPV fellowship? Let's say there's not a devoted transplantation yeah. part of that, like your Toronto training. Right. I think they can be great. I think the advantage there potentially
2: is a heavy emphasis on MIS. Mm. So you train at a place that gives you the MIS, whether it's robotic or laparoscopic. No offense to you guys. No offense to other surgical oncology programs. But I feel like some of them are behind from an MIS perspective. Um, And just like we are potentially in transplant as well, uh, we do some, but we don't do a lot. And I think sometimes you gotta spend an extra year with some folks that do so much of it that they get really good. So I think those one-year fellowships, and there's a few of them out there that emphasize Mm -hmm. so much on the MIS piece, you could come out and surgery is becoming less and less invasive. Gastric cancers and things like that, they're becoming more and more MIS operations, esophagectomies. So you can really develop a great niche uh, doing one of those fellowships, but your stick could be, at least in my opinion, your stick could be the MIS piece.
1: I agree with that completely.
2: When you become a CEO, I challenge you to start a cancer hospital that has a full-fledged transplant program, and we will run for the fences. Why <laughs> that has yet to happen, I don't yeah. know. I know you guys have a good relationship with Methodist, yeah. but I think this is the future of transplantation, and mm-hmm. potentially a good augmentation of cancer in general. But to have a transplant program as part of a cancer hospital just makes all the sense in the world to me.
1: I personally agree with you, but I'm no longer, I'm not, I'm not even close to a CEO. <laughs> um, I'm not even the CEO of my household. So, <laughs> but that that makes complete and total sense. I mean, as we figure out more and more how to, better select patients for the local therapy options that are out there. That just seems to be a tool in the tool belt that people are utilizing more and more. And what an excellent segue into our next topic that I was hoping we'd discuss today, which is consideration for transplantation for patients with, I guess I'll say unresectable colorectal liver metastases, but just this disease in general. For those who have been fortunate enough to escape COVID quarantine and, um, some of the restrictions of academic travel in the last couple of years, um, or at least listen to the hybrid um, formats for um, some of our meetings like HPBA, IHPBA, and SSO. You've probably heard Dr. Shaw talk and be either a panelist or a standalone discussant of the merits of this approach for this disease. So I was hoping we could touch on that. You wanna just get started with your thoughts on that and we'll just see where that goes.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm... um... I'm a proponent in the right cases, but I'm not gonna lie and tell you that I fully understand when we're gonna use it and when we're not. Um, We have done five cases. We have about three more on the waiting list, starting to get a lot of referrals from folks either around the country or even locally. And sometimes I am internally confused about a isolated liver metastasis and promoting the pump versus just working them up for a transplant. Just saw a patient about a month ago, really young, unfortunate, like 15 mets in the liver. And as I'm talking to them, I'm talking to them about what we can do. And I even mentioned, you know, a pump is an option here, potentially as a bridge to a transplant. But I also don't, I also know what happens with those transplants. Those transplants are very difficult. It's not as straightforward as a bridge to, like we do in HCC with other modalities to transplant and things like that. We haven't done one yet after a pump, um, but I think we have a lot of, of different, different modalities of treatment for this problem. And that's why I think it's important that we all join together and work together to really um, understand what works well when. And I know you know, you guys do so much work with the ctDNA and understanding the genetic markers and things. Maybe there's a role there for determining what the best therapy is. Um, as I've written about and talked about, my number one priority is to make sure it's unresectable. I have reviewed some scans from folks that have gotten transplanted, and I think I thought they were resectable with aggressive two-stage resections and. Really, maybe some of them are thinking outside the box a little bit, but you can really get aggressive uh, if the liver's normal and doesn't have too much chemotherapy and things. So we are going after folks that have been on chemo for five, six years, um, just not doing well at all on chemo. And our goal is for them to be chemo free. And any patient will tell you they hate being on chemo, especially if they're having a lot of side effects. Can we do a transplant and get them chemo free? And, and cured, potentially. Now, we've done five. We've already we've had two recurrences. Um, I don't quite understand what happens with the transplant because what is interesting is both patients with the recurrences are now cured. So one, had a, one had a lung met resected, and the other one had adenopathy that was biopsy-proven in the, in, the, uh, in the mediastinum. And after chemotherapy now, the pet's clean, everything looks good. I don't know, she's probably gonna get some more chemo just to have some maintenance. But um, two reasonably early recurrences, about one year out. And that kind of made me down about the whole thing. But it's kind of odd that they go away or they're cured, an isolated lung met. Um, And that guy got resected about three years ago and he's still disease free. So really just interesting compared to what we see normally with stage four cancer. and neither is on chemo right now. Um, the other three have done well, um, short-term follow-up though, not that long. So mm-hmm. they, are, they do recur. I think about half, looking at the Oslo data, a lot of them recur, but they seem to live a
1: long time. So now the only question is, would they have lived a long time without a transplant? As the question is, did, did this, and this is for any local therapy, quite frankly, is it better than chemotherapy alone? Right, did, 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 they, did you help them with that transplantation? Or would they have done that well with just chemotherapy? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, clearly there's hyper selection um, for these patients because it seems that we obviously do not have the luxury of um, available organs like the Norwegians do. So just for our listeners, um, Dr. Shaw mentioned the Oslo data. A lot of this has been pioneered um, out of Norway um, with the original uh, publication being the SECA one study, which is an annals of surgery 2013, I believe, and then followed up with a more um, highly selected cohort of patients in the CECA-2 study. I believe that's in 2015, and then most recently with more survival data published in 2020. We'll place those in the show notes as we discuss them. Um, do you refer to these studies when you talk to patients uh, um, and, and amongst your group? Um, do you think that these patients that are in the CICA are, are what we're seeing here? Because um, it seems to me like they, they have so many organs that it might as well just start using them.
2: Yeah, I I mean it's only fifty patients. Right. It's not that many patients. But between um, both
1: two studies, two yeah. studies combined is fifty patients. Yeah. yeah. We
2: um, we worked with Paul Dagline to, to make our protocol, and I actually reviewed every case with him before mm. we listed them or transplanted them. And even the other day, I texted him because um, a good friend texted about someone that has unresectable liver mets. Actually, might've had a resection, um, but unresectable liver mets, had some resections, now can't do anything, no volume left, but had lung mets about two years ago that um, was treated with radiation and there's no evidence of disease, would we consider transplant? and he'll send the patient up. But I ran it by him and he said, no way, no go. They're starting to look at that in Oslo now, but, um, but that's really kind of an exclusion parameter. So, and we're seeing that with other patients where um, they might've had peritoneal disease back in 2017, there was thickening on pad or there was thickening, there was some lymph nodes in the mesentery. And then they either went away, but no one ever did a biopsy to prove it. And now here we are liver only disease, well, was it liver only disease or was there disease back in the day and it went away with chemo? So we've turned all those patients down but it gets really gray and hazy because like you said, Tim, it's the best of the best Mm -hmm. Um, and it's truly just liver only. Well, how many of those patients are there really? There aren't as many as we might think.
1: Some people may may think that there's not any quite frankly and it's just such a low indolent volume of distributed disease hopefully something like ctdna will help us because that patient who has stayed five years disease-free may have had perineal disease or a mediastinal nose or whatever it was you're saying before is ctdna negative now times how long it has a right. recurrent liver i don't i don't know where we're going with this it's a it's a whole new world but i think most it's safe to say of at least the protocols that i have reviewed including ours at this point in time that having extra hepatic disease or a history of extra disease um, is an exclusion criteria for transplantation. Right. right, and they're doing a study out
2: there now to look at this. So we'll, maybe we'll, in a few years, we'll have some answers. And they're also doing a study looking at comparing the pump. Mm. And I don't know how they're comparing the patients because obviously, you know, unless it's randomized, it's going to be hard to really necessarily know which one's better. But um, I think those are some of the big things is what are some, are there other markers we can look at if someone's had previous history of disease, like you're saying, that might make them a candidate. I will say the great thing about um, the transplant piece, pretty straightforward, relatively easy operation to do. Um, and it rids them of that disease, gets them a new liver. And now there's obviously some complications from the liver perspective and things like that that you have to deal with, hernias and everolimus and stuff like that. But all in all, it's relatively straightforward. It's just picking the right patients and, and getting them done. We've done um, one with a live donor, but the other four I've been able to get deceased donors um, for them. Um, you know, marginal organs that other people have turned down and things like that. But, um, but so there's
1: organs out there. It, it can be done if you want it to be done. So what about the transplant um, management immunosuppression? Let's say that the morbidity of the operation and outcomes are extremely favorable at a high volume center. What is different between a transplant and a large resection, like two stage hepatectomy with PVE, maybe even hepatic venous embolization for hypertrophy? What's different between the two, or are they both just very large local therapies? I think the big difference
2: I don't have to worry about losing a patient from liver failure. I get a lot of calls from friends around the country, they've done operations and the patients have a bilirubin of 15 now, it's post-op day 10, Uh, what do I do? I'm like, I'm sorry, but most likely this patient's gonna die.
1: Not sleeping, yeah.
2: And we've all been there. If you do enough (laughs) liver surgery, you're gonna have someone die of liver failure post-op. But the amount of chemo they've gotten, those things, you've done all your homework, the PVE looks like it's the right percentage. Uh, They responded well to PVE, HVE, whichever modality you might've used. But yet you do the resection, you walk away, you're high-fiving, and then next thing you know, a week later, they might have liver failure. At least on the transplant perspective, you're not dealing with that. You're dealing Mm -hmm. with other things. Um, We do normal. Everything's the same for them from our perspective, except on day 30, we follow the Oslo thing where we switch them over to Everolimus, which has Mm -hmm. some anti-neoplastic properties, although it does affect some wound healing. But otherwise, everything else is exactly the same. Right. and, but I do think that that when you get really aggressive with colorectal mets, um, we've all been burned with liver failure here and there. And you got to be really smart about that. So maybe this is a nice avenue. The problem is doing it after the resection has been done and trying to do a salvage transplant. Like we talked about, these patients are so highly selected. Usually there's something that has probably ruled them out. Maybe there was a lung met before, or there was something... You know, the colon resection wasn't done to our protocol. So to rely on, on transplant as the as the backup in case you do have liver failure is a tricky proposition if you're a surgical oncologist who's really aggressive.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a tough thing. So, um, so many questions. So <laughs> um, I think it's a good time just to mention as well to, our, to everyone here that um, there is a consensus guideline publication um, Dr. Bonnie is the first author for the IHPBA consensus guidelines for at least starting somewhere with a selection criteria for patients to consider for transplantation for this disease. Um, and a lot of the things that Dr. Shaw has already mentioned are in there. We can place that in the show notes as well. Dr. Adam is the, is the, the senior author on that publication. But what, so you mentioned that you have a protocol at Cincinnati, um, what are the main highlights of your protocol um, that you think are, are critical, uh, other than being uh, having a consensus that this is unresectable and probably being reviewed in a multidisciplinary fashion, yeah. number one, obviously. Um, and you know, along that line, what is the time criteria for you in terms of how, a lot of protocols I've noticed have some degree of time built in to sort of measure what's going to happen, right? Like, is there something extra padded that's going to show itself? To help select for uh, favorable biology, what do you what is that in your protocol? Yeah. Number one and number two, how critical is that? Yeah, so we the tricky one is it
2: has to be at least one year from diagnosis of the colon cancer. And commonly now, like patients are hearing about our program, we're getting them before one year. Mm-hmm. That's really really early, but usually they presented with synchronous Mets. They have right. their and sometimes the colon's not even removed. We'll get to that in a minute. But, um, so one year from diagnosis, and then once we've seen them, let's say it's liver only, the colon is out, the colon resection has to be with negative margins. You know, the usual stuff mm-hmm. we, we check the KRAS mutant and all that kind of stuff, but uh, we need at least three to six months, but three months minimum of stable disease,
1: three months, minimum stable disease, the on or off chemo, uh, that is on chemo, but typically they're off as they're waiting.
2: Right. for our eligibility and stuff like that. So it right. works out okay in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's usually off. Um, and then it might be on some maintenance or something like that once yeah. we know they're a go and things like that. But that three-month thing is it's not that long. Yeah. Um, and especially if you're looking at a live donor, then by the time you book it and things like that, your, your three months have elapsed and you can you know, recheck them. That hasn't been as much of an issue because you know, we have so many modalities to stabilize people's disease. And then you're relying on just radiologic imaging to determine whether that ablation or whatever you did, it's dealer's yeah. choice in, in how you interpret what that needs to be. I was surprised that so many patients got referred that were less than one year from diagnosis. And we have two or three right now that still have their colons in that we, and two of them we've taken out their colons. And when I was at the IHPBA, it opened my eyes to that a little bit about people talking about how that's such a negative that we're subjecting people to a collectomy just so we can transplant them. And that's the advantage of going to meetings, which we have been away from for a couple of years, but it really mm-hmm. made me think a little bit about, yes, you know, that actually makes some sense. Are we, are we hurting these patients? Cause we're making them have a collectomy for what? So we might transplant them down the road uh, when they're, you know, they're doing okay. Just living with the disease in both sites on chemo.
1: Yeah. I have had to have a very frank conversation with patients. I mean, obviously there's. Mounting evidence, at least two high-profile publications now in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, showing there is no benefit to overall survival for asymptom- removal of an asymptomatic primary colorectal tumor for patients with unresectable liver metastases or more even more disseminated disease. I think that makes intuitive sense. You got to parse out the populations, but if patients are getting chemo alone and chemo is their their treatment, you're only serving to keep them from it with that. We have to figure out a way, I think, going forward with figuring out who is actually going to realistically rid of what is their predominant site or hopefully only site of disease is in their liver. That's a good argument to have. We need to have like a debate about that and upcoming means just that alone. I mean, who who should do that? I think you really have to be bought in on the transplant as a definitive Mm -hmm. therapy if
2: you're going to make someone have a colectomy. And we have, like I said, we've had three patients, two have undergone the colectomy. They haven't undergone the transplant yet. But we are—we have a protocol. We put it out about a year ago, following others. Uh, and at first, when I heard about it, I was like, "Wow, that's interesting. That's aggressive." Um, but we convinced ourselves it was the right thing to do. But then when I went to the meeting, it made me it made me think twice about it.
1: I was interested to hear the three months. I mean, ours at this point in time is six months. I think the IHPBA, all things in their treatment paradigm, and one of their figures—if you look at it—it it ends up being one year minimum prior to transplantation. Also, a lot of time. A lot of time to fall off the protocol, so to speak, that's the idea, right? Yeah. Um, but in there, people are going to have colectomies, and then you got to find a colorectal surgeon who's willing to do that and assume to some degree the potential risks of that, you know, not, this is not, patient not withstanding, obviously, is, a, is the primary concern. My personal feeling is it has to be on a protocol. For well, data. the patients, the patients want the transplant.
2: Yeah, because they've yeah. been bought in about being chemo-free and long-term survival. And, and so they're self-selecting themselves. And that's what I've found really surprising, but they they want the transplant. And, mm-hmm. um, and so you have to be careful not to fall in just because the patient's begging you to do it. I think that we're gonna have some data coming out soon from Paris uh, about their experience. And I think it's very positive. Uh, unofficially, we're looking at a roughly a 75% five-year survival. mm mm-hmm. So looking forward to seeing those results. So I think they're coming out soon from the day on group.
1: And that's relatively, that's in line with contemporary Norwegian data. I think it was like 80%, 76%, something like that. I don't have it in front of me. So that was going to be my next question is what is the goal for transplantation? Assuming that some patients may recur, but maybe in, in in a salvageable fashion, what is the goal when writing a protocol for this or or when considering for patients? What is, what is the percent five-year survival that is acceptable on par with HCC, for example, which is a localized cancer, this is stage four, or is it lower? Um, is it chemo-free time that you mentioned? Um, I don't know. What are your right. thoughts? So I think the chemo-free time is important.
2: I don't think it should be recurrence rate. But I think the survival should be equivalent to the survival of all the other indications for transplant. That way, you're not hurting those patients. And so, for instance, our three-year survival is 83% for all comers. That's ours. That's the country, roughly, 80 mm-hmm. to 80 to 85%. But around 83% is about the average. So you would think 75% five-year survival is about right for all patients who get transplanted. So I think that should probably be the minimum for colorectal mass from transplant. Yeah. So make it equal to the alcoholics, the hep Cs, you know, the PBCs, PSCers that are coming to you for their own, you know, their own disease state. Make this another disease state, but make sure that the survival is pretty similar, if not equivalent, so that you're not hurting other patients that that have a true and tried indication for transplant. We don't want to hurt um, a whole population that now doesn't have access because we're doing a ton of co meds.
1: What about biologic stratification outside of time? So time obviously can help you with that. Um, what are the biologic stratification tools that we have available that you think are important to say this person has a biologic disease that has potential for eighty percent five-year survival?
2: You know, that's All right. So I mean, I think looking at our, our markers right now. So I mean, we're just only thing we're primarily looking at is is Kras mutants and things like that. But if are there is there going to be more down the pike, uh, similar to the stuff that you guys are looking at that we can add to the armamentarium? And and be better and making sure that we're using the organs wisely. I think that's probably the future, and maybe we need to incorporate mm-hmm. that in our in our protocol. I'm sure you've written that in in yours, but it's actually kind of a cool idea that maybe I'll, I'll bring home and um, and see if we we add that in there because we're not really looking at those right now clinically. We're not using those markers for our resection patients like you guys are. Um, I don't know how many I don't know how much the community is, but we haven't been doing that. Uh, we've talked about it. Yeah. But we haven't felt that the data has been that strong. Now, I know some publications are coming out now, so, um, but I don't know. But I think that's probably the next step.
1: It's hard because it's data up front and you haven't walked the walk to know whether this person, everyone's an individual patient, obviously, right? Everything is a percentage. I think there are some compelling biologic markers. And, and if you were able to say just overall whatever mutation it may be, whatever response to therapy it may be, whatever primary tumor, lymph node status, immunoscore, whatever it is people are looking at, RNA expression profiling, metabolomics, all these things that people are are trying to find a way to select. Would that change, in your opinion, because I have a strong opinion about this, but I'm not the person transplanting these patients, the time for referral? Because just to bring it 360 here, I found the hardest thing is that patients, when they're upfront, diagnosed with synchronous disease, unresectable, they're asking, you know, in my clinic, should I get a pump? Should I try to get resected? Should I see a transplant surgeon? I've read all this on Dr. Google. Is there a way to sift through this to allow for early referral? Because I would assume that an early referral to you makes a lot of sense if you're able to move them along and be part of their care from the very beginning. But I don't want to waste your time. No, I think um, that's what we're
2: going to figure out as a group. That's going to be the future, yeah. but I think creating some of these registries and looking at this is probably our next step. Right now, we're getting the referrals pretty late, which is okay. Um, we want patients to have exhausted all the other options, um, mm-hmm. so I'm actually okay with late referrals. Even one patient had, I think, five resections um, already and things like that. But you know, an aggressive surgery, which is okay. So I think I think we're okay with that. Um, we did the last one. We did the patient had never had surgery. That's a little weird, but it was unresectable. From the beginning, so I think I think transplant should be at the back end of things. Um, I don't know about the pump; that's a whole different story. We didn't really talk about it because I know you guys don't do it. But um, where does that fall into play? But I think the markers are the future, and and trying to understand that better is going to be something we should work on the next few years.
1: Yeah. I think it's, it's got to be very confusing in a very stressful time for patients as well right now with this problem, because I don't think there's a lot of straight answers sometimes too. So as a community, hopefully we can come together and and sort this out. And I um, think it's tricky because it really
2: just kind of depends on who you see then. Of course. Yeah. And so if you see someone that really likes to put the pump in, that's what you're going to get. And we're, Mm -hmm. we're probably looking at the same kind of patient. Yeah. Um, we're a little bit more stringent, I think, on the transplant side, because you couldn't have any other extrapatic disease and things like that. And the pump, you can put it in anyone and you can put it in the pump while you're doing the colectomy and stuff like that. But it is a lot less invasive than a transplant. So I do see the merits of it. Um, and I think there's probably some role in, in doing it first. Just need to understand what happens and why does it make the hepatis so scarred in and, and hard then for the next therapy in case they fail. Yeah. And and what does a failure mean and things like that. But that's where the markers might help and stuff.
1: Yeah, I've heard about that. I've obviously never seen it. Um, and people have mentioned it at meetings as well. I'm interested to know other people's experience with that because it does make sense. Technically speaking, if you can treat the organ that you don't care how much disease is in it, you just want to prove that there's no disease elsewhere. This is an ideal candidate for the ultimate hepatectomy. It makes sense.
2: Yeah, it buys Absolutely. you time and it can be done, um, but it's the, the therapy itself sclerosis, the portohepidus, and, mm-hmm. and socks everything in, and, and so it makes it harder. Is it doable? Yes, I think it's doable. We haven't had one yet, but I'm sure there'll be one down our pike soon.
1: Interesting. We're well, looking forward to hearing more. Well, I think we're, we're getting to the end of our hour here. and really appreciate you spending some time with us today. At the end of the show, we'd like to to give you kind of the open mic and and anything you'd like to say to our audience.
2: Thank you for having me, Tim, and congratulations on all the great work you've done. I think the field is at an exciting time. We are blending in a lot of molecular therapies. We're trying to understand a lot of what's happening with the cancers. We're getting better technically, whether it's less invasive, uh, whether it's more invasive, whether it's using transplant as a new adjunct It's great that um, I was invited to the SSO and we're talking about transplant at at the SSO. So we're understanding that maybe there's a role for it, Um, but it's an exciting time to be an HPV surgeon. And I think having the best and the brightest go into it is really important. And podcasts like this, where we're talking about a specific disease and can spend an hour going over different aspects um, of things is really important. But at the end of the day, um, understanding all the different tools and knowing when to use them is so important. And just because you have one hammer doesn't mean it always works. And that's the one thing that scares me sometimes a little bit is we were just talking um, the other day, we did an HCC resection that was really high up on the hepatic veins. And we were having a pre-op conference. And I was talking about, again, just from the IHPBA, and Guido Torzilli's group was talking about R1 resections. And the medical mm-hmm. student asked, how much of a margin do we need? and i said man you just opened up a can of oh, worms but- <laughs> that is the most controversial question you could ask all day and you didn't even know it. so i think it's but exciting and the right we, question you
1: know, yeah
2: mm-hmm. and we should all embrace these things and be a part of it and and think um, think loud and think broad but but understand the pros and cons of everything cuz our patients' lives are at stake
1: yeah thank you so much for that it is such an exciting time i just wanted to say if i may that one of the best parts of this time is how much we all get to work together and bring our individual skill sets to the patient. Um, What an awesome time for team hepatobiliary science and the best thing on earth to do is be a hepatobiliary surgeon. There's a lot of paths to get there. For those who are listening, as you may have heard, feel free to reach out to us if you have the opportunity to talk to your mentors about it. There's a lot of opinions, but just go with your gut and with your heart. It's a great field. Thank you again for listening to our latest episode of the AHPBA podcast. We were so fortunate to spend time with Dr. Shimmel Shaw, and it was an excellent opportunity for us to, to learn from such an established transplant surgeon as this field for transplantation for colorectal liver meds and transplantation in general is exploding. Please... Take a look at the show notes for citations for some of the papers that were referenced in this episode, and we hope you enjoyed it and look forward to bringing you more episodes from the AHPPA podcast in the future.